0: John 7, 1 to 13. John 7, 1 to 13. The world cannot hate you. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea, because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of Booths, was at hand. His brothers, therefore, said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea that your disciples also may behold your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Jesus therefore said to them, My time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as it were in secret. The Jews, therefore, were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? And there was much grumbling among the multitudes concerning him. Some were saying, He is a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he leads the multitude astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. Amen. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll give us The kind of mind that Christ has and had during his ministry. Give us the mind to please you, to do your will, even in the face of opposition, no matter who it is that is before us, even if it's our own family. Teach us, Father, that when we speak the truth, we will be persecuted. The world will hate us. The world cannot hate us, Father, when we speak falsehood but only when we speak the truth. Lord, your word teaches us this, and we pray that we'll have true understanding and true conviction and faith on this matter. In Christ's name, amen. In the previous chapter, the dialogue that he had, the exchange he had with the crowd of the 5,000 men plus women and children, that has ended. Then we pick up, with a new season and a new festival that is about to take place in chapter 7. Jesus is about to go to the Feast of Booths. Well, with this incident, before he actually goes to the feast, he has a dialogue with his family. In the previous chapter, he had a dialogue with the crowds, the multitudes. Now he has one with his own brothers. Just as the crowds did not believe him, his brothers in this more intimate and private setting do not believe him either. The population doesn't believe him and his own people, his own kindred, do not believe him. This is what we learn in chapter 7 about his own family. 7 verse 1. After these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. The dialogue that he had in chapter 6 also took place in the northern regions in the city of Capernaum. He continues to remain in the northern region of Galilee, the northern province of Galilee, because it says in chapter 7, verse 1, in Judea, and Jerusalem is the capital of Judea and was the capital of the whole nation of Israel, even including Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. It was the capital. And in the capital, we have the temple. And in the temple, we have the priests and the Levites. We have the scribes and the Pharisees. We have the Sadducees. We have the whole central authority of the nation of the Jews, residing there in Jerusalem and in the province or region of Judea. Because they are there in greater numbers and they have the power of that region, Jesus knows that if he goes there and the time is not right, he might be put to death. It says he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Yes, the Jews who think that they are loving and kind people, The Jews who believe that they have better wisdom and the correct interpretation of the Bible, they are the ones who are seeking to persecute Jesus Christ to death. They want to kill him. For example, chapter 5. Chapter 5, 16. In chapter 5, Jesus healed a man and he did it on the Sabbath day. In the aftermath of that, we pick it up at 5.16. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working for this cause or for this reason. Therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father making himself equal with God. They had no valid basis to kill him, yet they wanted to kill him. At least since chapter 5 in John here, they want to kill him. And that that continues into chapter 7. Because they want to kill him, he avoided that region. We pick it up at verse 2. Now, the feast of the Jews, the Feast of Booths, was at hand. The Feast of Booths. Uh, there were several feasts that the Jews needed to celebrate based on the Law of Moses and the Book of Esther. Based on those feasts, the Jews had a calendar and they would have seasons and festivals to celebrate. This Feast of Booths would take place in the fall. It's called the Feast of Booths because they were supposed to build temporary booths or tents, tabernacles, to dwell in that place, in those booths, for one week. They were supposed to do so. And this feast was to commemorate the deliverance of the people out of Egypt, and specifically that they had to live in the wilderness under Moses' leadership, for 40 years in temporary shelters, in temporary shelters to commemorate the fact that after their deliverance, they were now in the desert, in the wilderness for 40 years, and they needed to depend all the more on God to grant them provisions in the 40 years of wilderness wandering. It was to commemorate the faithfulness of God in a very barren place, in a very a place where they were in utter dependence on God it was to remind them to do so further we know from deuteronomy we can read about this for example in leviticus chapter 23 in deuteronomy chapter 16 we may also read and in 1616 16, it actually says that every male among the Jews needed to make sure He was present at three annual festivals. At three of the several annual festivals, they needed to make sure they were present. And one of them was the Feast of Booths. At the Feast of Booths, Jesus had to go. And Jesus' brothers had to go. They all were compelled by the law of Moses to attend this festival or feast. Verse 3. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may behold your works, which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known publicly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Their words are words of mockery, Their words are words of temptation and mockery in verses 3 and 4. They are taunting him. They're challenging him to do something if he claims to be the Christ. That's what they're doing in verses 3 and 4. If we don't understand their tone, tone of mockery, verse 5 makes it clear because John the Apostle tells us, not even his brothers were believing in him. They don't believe in him. They don't believe he is the Christ. Well, verse three, notice what they say exactly. It first tells us his brothers in verse three. And in verse five, it says his brothers. Verse 10, his brothers. Who is speaking here? The text of scripture says his brothers taken at face value, taken in the normal way in which the word is used. In context, we're talking about brothers in his own family, his own immediate family. We might also say his nuclear family, his own immediate family. In that family, he had brothers. He had literal brothers. It doesn't say cousin brothers brothers. It does not say relatives. It says brothers. Keep your place here and turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. Verse 1. Mark 6, 1 to 6. And he went out from there and he came into his hometown and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. Similarly, we have the townsmen in a commotion wondering who is this man teaching on the Sabbath? How does he have wisdom? How does he have miracles? And then they say, their disdain comes out more clearly in verse 3. Their disdain of Christ comes out more clearly in verse 3. Is not this the carpenter? They didn't. You, you see, if he were the king, if he were a nobleman, if he were a rich man, Then they might not have said this, but they say, is not this the carpenter? Today, we would say he was a blue collar worker, a blue in manual labor. A blue collar worker is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary. They know his mother is Mary, brother of James, Joseph, Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us. And they took offense at him. And clearly then in verse 6, he wondered at their unbelief. Christ wondered at their unbelief and didn't do very many miracles in that place at that time. Christ also said, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. Why did he come so close in proximity? He says, in his own household. Because in chapter 6 and even in chapter 7, he had incidents of members of his own household. And we have named four brothers and at least two sisters unnamed mentioned in verse 3. Chapter 6, verse 3. Jesus had four brothers, sons of Mary and two sisters from Mary. Not cousin brothers, but from marriage. Well, in the same way, in John 7, his own immediate flesh and blood are against him. In their opposition to him, they say, go away from here. Verse 3, John 7, verse 3. Go into Judea. That your disciples... He doesn't say... He does. They don't say that Jesus is their disciple. He's saying your disciples are keeping distance from him. They may behold your work. They may witness your miracles, which you are doing. You see, it's it's about you and those other people. Let them see what you're all about. And then don't try to do all of this in secret. Remember, Jesus had a valid reason to be in secret or away from persecution to death earlier in the chapter, right? But here now they are taunting him and saying, you should be doing all this publicly. If you really believed everything you're saying, you would do everything publicly. You wouldn't use any caution. You would use no caution and do everything publicly. Show yourself to the world. Show yourself. Just don't restrict yourself to our little place, our no-name area. Go to Judea, go to Jerusalem, show yourself to the world, even to many others. Then verse 5, not even his brothers were believing in him. Remember we said from earlier passages in the book of John, John is apt, John is inclined to tell us example after example of true faith and false faith. True faith and false faith. Here we have another example of false faith. His own brothers do not believe in him. Later, a couple of years later, by that point, they do believe in him. We know that from Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Acts 1, 14. They eventually do but by John 7, they do not. Acts fourteen. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. His brothers. By that point, as they await the day of Pentecost, they do believe but they did not at that point in John 7 during Jesus' ministry. They were unbelievers. Verse 6, John 7, verse 6. Jesus therefore said to them, My time is not yet at hand, but your time is always opportune. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast, because my time... Has not yet fully come. And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. Verse 10 But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as it were in secret. In verse 6, Jesus tells his brothers that his time to go up has not arrived. Not that he's not going up, but his time hasn't arrived because he's waiting for the right time to go up to the feast, but when he does go up, to go up in secret. He has to gauge the situation when it is opportune for him to go. But he tells his brothers, your time is always opportune. Now remember, his brothers are unbelievers, And why is it always opportune for his brothers to go to the feast where the crowds will be, where the multitude will be? Why is it always opportune for them, but not always opportune for Christ? He explains in verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Jesus is meaning that I have to be careful where I go, what I do. I have to be careful with those things, but you don't have to be careful, you my brothers don't have to be careful because the world cannot hate you. The world cannot hate you because you are all unbelievers and unbelievers, they pat each other on the back, they flatter each other, they don't tell the truth to one another, They're always trying to please men. They're always trying to draw a crowd. They're always trying to have as many friends as possible. They don't speak the truth. Even if something happens that they don't like, they don't usually tell their friends to their face, that is wicked. You're sinning against God and you're going to go to hell. They won't say those things. They will either keep quiet or turn the other way or just laugh it off. They'll do something But they'll never say, that's a sin against Almighty God, the Holy God, and you are going to die and go to hell if you don't repent. They won't do that. Naturally, all of us as unbelievers, we don't do that. We want a crowd. We want many friends. We want everybody to like us. That's what we do. Typically, that's the way people are. That's why Jesus said to his brothers, the world cannot hate you. It's not going to hate you. You're going to have many friends because you're going to flatter one another. You're going to seek to network. You're going to make as many connections as possible. That's what you're going to do. So it will not hate you. So go up whenever you feel like going up. Go up a few days in advance. You don't have to worry about who's watching you. You don't have to make sure that your back is covered. You don't have to worry about anything. Just go yourselves. Now, when Jesus said that this to his brothers, he contrasted it with himself. Why is it that they can go up whenever they feel like it, but Jesus cannot? Why is it that Jesus has to be careful and cautious about his actions, where he goes, when he goes, and who knows that he is there? Verse 7, John 7, 7. Because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Because Jesus had no qualms of telling people that they were sinning, whoever it was. If he had a a woman such as the woman of Samaria in John 4, who was agreeable to talking with him he would talk to her according to that situation. He did not berate her. He did not call her daughter of the devil. He did not berate her or anything like that because she was agreeable to talking to him. But when he was in another situation and he had to deal with somebody who should have known better, who should have responded better, and they would not, they resisted and they start lobbying accusations against him, then he, he would fight back and he would lob accusations against them. They would slander him with accusations, but then he would tell the truth to them and tell them about their true nature. Like John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, they turn up the heat against Christ. They start to imply some things and even explicitly mention some things. So finally, for example, in John 8, Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. He lets them have it. He didn't say that to the woman of Samaria. He didn't even say that to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He told Nicodemus that he's an unbeliever, but he didn't say you are of your father, the devil, because even Nicodemus as an unbeliever did not turn up the heat to lob accusations against Christ. But in John 8, they start to do that. So Jesus throws it back on them. And because Jesus testifies of it, that its deeds are evil, they hate him. They hate him. And they will hate us also if we testify of their evil deeds. Verse 8, go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. Jesus is not lying here in verse 8. He's not deceiving them in verse 8. He just told them, you can go at any opportune time. I cannot do that. But when my time has fully come, I will go up because I know that I must go up because of obedience, faithful obedience to the law of Moses. It is my duty to obey the law of Moses. I will go up. I'll go up when it is the right Time. He stayed in Galilee, verse 9, until it was the right time for him to go. In verse 10, his brothers do go up. And when his brothers do go up, it says in verse 10, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as it were, in secret. In secret. We see here, a distinction, a difference. They can go up publicly because they're not going to preach the truth against anybody or to anybody. He cannot do so. Jesus has to hide. He has to be in secret to protect his life. To protect his life. In the book of John and elsewhere in Scripture, you will notice that sometimes... The truth is spoken openly, forthrightly. And at other times, the messenger of truth, he has to hide. He has to escape. He has to run for his life. Even Christ did that. In John chapter 8, when they picked up stones to throw at him, in John eight fifty nine, at the end of the chapter, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. In John 7, he's cautious, and in John 8, he's cautious. When he knew that they wanted to stone him to death, he fled. He ran for his life in some hidden place. That's what he did. At the right time, eventually, Jesus will die on the cross. And even at the right time, we might have to die. But meantime, we do what's necessary to be cautious and careful about our own life that we might preserve it to preach and teach the gospel, to raise our families to know Christ, and to continue living in the world. Verse 11, John 7, 11. The Jews, therefore, were seeking him at the feast and were saying, Where is he? And there was much grumbling among the multitudes concerning him. Some were saying, He is a good man. Others were saying, No, on the contrary, he leads The multitude astray. Yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. The Jews naturally are curious. So far, Christ has been attending the festivals, he has been in Jerusalem and in Judea, he has been present, and everybody knows something about Him. They know He performs miracles. They know He preaches. They know He has this amazing wisdom, the the wisdom that comes from knowing the Scriptures and explaining it promptly and accurately for any given situation. Jesus had that kind of wisdom. So, they are naturally curious. Where is He? In verse 11. However, there is some Disagreement among them. There is some confusion and commotion around, uh, among them. They are grumbling. They're grumbling at each other because on the one hand, one group says he's a good man. On the other hand, no, they say he's not a good man because he leads the multitude astray. He's not just leading one or two men astray. He's le- leading many, many people, crowds of people astray. Why would they say he's leading the crowds astray? Because the crowds have been taught by the scribes and the Pharisees. The crowds have been taught by the Sadducees and the Herodians. The crowds have been taught by the religious establishment. The crowds have been taught by the Sanhedrin. They have been taught by these elders among the people and therefore if Jesus is preaching against the religious establishment, then he must be somebody leading the multitudes astray. They don't have the ability to discern. They don't have the ability to understand what exactly is he saying and does his teaching conform to Scripture or contradict Scripture. They don't have that discernment to do so because they're so caught up with Well, the multitudes who are taught by the religious establishment, we might say today, by the seminaries of today, or by the mega pastors of today, since the crowds are taught by these very persuasive, very honorable, worldly speaking, honorable men, and these days women, since they are taught that way, By so many, how could so many people be wrong? Right? So, this is what's going on. The multitudes are noticing there is some difference. And so, they are being picked off away from the Pharisees and away from the Sadducees. And they're being drawn to Christ. Now, we know that they are being drawn to Christ mainly because of His miracles not mainly because of his message, but because of his miracles. Nevertheless, it's causing some division among the people because the multitudes don't have 100% devotion to the religious establishment. So now there's confusion and there's commotion among them. This is what the truth will do. The truth will inevitably create some division, but that division is not a sinful division. That division is a necessary division. It's not a sinful division, but a necessary division. When the truth is proclaimed. Of course, when falsehood is proclaimed, it produces an unnecessary division. Those who preach false doctrine produce, bring about an unjustifiable division and contention and faction in the church. But when those who proclaim the truth are preaching, they bring about a necessary and a good division and demarcation among the people who hear the truth. How can we make such a distinction? How can we make such a distinction? If we see falsehood on the one hand and then Truth, on the other hand, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, 1 Corinthians, chapter 1. This is an example of falsehood and false motives bringing an unnecessary division. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 10, false division, 1 Corinthians One Ten. Now I exhort you brethren by the name chapter 1 verse 10 Now I exhort you brethren by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that you all agree and there be no divisions among you but you be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment for I have been informed concerning you my brethren by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you Now I mean this That each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius. That no man should say you were baptized in my name. Now I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptize any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not in cleverness of speech, that the cross of Christ should not be made void. This is an unjustifiable division. He says he wants them to be of the same mind. And why is it unjustifiable? Because they are preaching um, factionalism. They're preaching a party spirit. I of Paul, I of Apollos, I of Cephas, and the one who's got the upmanship says, I of Christ. How can you deny that, right? I'm of Christ, so I have the superior party, faction. And Paul says, you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be doing this. Not at all. We are preaching Christ. We are baptized in the name of Christ. We preach the cross of Christ. We don't preach people. We preach Christ. We don't preach preachers. We preach Christ. And if we preach Christ, it will not lead to this quarreling and divisiveness among you. That's a negative example of division. How about a positive example of division? First Corinthians, First Corinthians 11:17. First Corinthians 11: 17 to 19. Now, before we read 11:17, in the previous verse, verse 16, he says, "But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice nor have the churches of God. Okay? In 1 Corinthians 11, 1 to 16, he preached or he taught his doctrine, the apostolic doctrine, in chapter 11, 1 to 16. That's what he preached. So he's preaching the truth. When he preaches the truth, inevitably somebody will be contentious which is what he's saying in verse 16, if one is inclined to be contentious, he's saying, when that contention arises, because I had preached the truth, he's saying, we have no other practice. That is, I'm not going to entertain that contention, I'm going to speak against the contention, rising up against the truth I just preached, And I want you to know not only do we have no other practice nor have the churches of God the other churches of God wherever they have been planted by the apostles wherever any other part of the world in those places we do the same thing. We taught them the truth contentions arose in opposition to the truth and we taught them to hold firm to these practices, to these apostolic traditions to maintain the faith. Okay, the truth was preached, contentions arose. So what to do? Verse 17, 11, 17. But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you because you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you And in part, I believe it. In part, I believe it. He's not surprised that divisions occur. Why? Because they occur when you preach falsehood and they occur when you preach the truth. Divisions arise. But why do they arise? 19. For there must also be factions among you in order that those who are approved may have become evident among you. It must happen that factions or divisions, schisms, arise among us for a reason, for a purpose, in order that or so that those who are approved may become evident among you. We have to know, we have to be taught constantly who is of the truth and who is not of the truth. And when the faction or the division arises... It brings to our awareness what the truth of God is and who is believing in it, and what falsehood is, what Satan is promoting, and who belongs to Satan. That's why divisions arise. And in that way it also arose in the time of Christ, when he preached the truth. Now, John 7, 13. John seven, thirteen. Yet no one was speaking of him, was openly speaking of him for fear of the Jews. For fear of the Jews. In the case of Christ, he feared for his life because he was not to be stoned to death, right? He was not to be arrested and stoned to death. He was to be crucified according to prophecy he was to be beaten and crucified like that. That's how he was to die, not in any other way. And at the right time, by the right authorities in a public setting, which all happened according to prophecy. That's the way in which he was to die. So in Jesus' case, he was not being a coward. His disciples in the book of Acts, whenever they were threatened, with physical harm, and they escaped, such as the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. He escaped out of the city with the help of some disciples through a window in a basket in the wall of the city, right? Acts chapter 9 teaches us that. And even 2 Corinthians 11 reiterates that point that that's how Paul, the Apostle, escaped. In Acts chapter 8, when a persecution arose in connection with the stoning of Stephen to death, the disciples were scattered in various places and they went about preaching the gospel wherever they were scattered, except the apostles, the twelve apostles, were able to remain in Jerusalem. But the disciples were not told that they were sinning in those cases, right? They weren't sinning. Paul was not in Acts chapter 9. The disciples were not in Acts chapter 8. Sometimes... We must do so to preserve our physical life. We must attempt to escape. But in this case, in this case, in verse 13, yet no one was speaking openly of him for fear of the Jews. In this case, it has to do with them fearing being expelled from the synagogue. Fearing being expelled from the synagogue. They did not want to lose their place of worship. They did not want to lose their friends. They did not want to lose their families. You might say, how do we know that that is the case? An example comes up in John chapter 9. John chapter 9. John chapter 9. There was a man who was born blind, he was healed. He was healed by Christ. And then the Pharisees, the Jews, they approach the parents of the man who was healed of his blindness. They approach the parents of the man and interrogate them as to their own son. They ask about the the son of these parents. So it says in verse 20 John 9:20 His parents answered them and said answered them the Jews We know that this is our son and that he was born blind but how he now sees we do not know or who opened his eyes we do not know Ask him he is of age He shall speak for himself. Are they saying this because they want the facts to be correctly conveyed to the Jews? Or are they saying this for some other reason? Verse 22. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess him to be Christ, he should be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. The parents are disowning their own son. Their own son who had been blind from birth, now healed by Christ. Why? Why? Because they did not want to be thrown out of the synagogue because if they said that Christ did it and that they also believe in Christ, like their son eventually did at the end of the chapter, if they had said anything like that, if they had gone in the direction of Christ, they were afraid they would be thrown out of the synagogue. This is the reason that they were afraid even, I think, in John chapter 7, Verse 13, they were afraid of losing friendships. They were afraid of losing their favor with the people. They were losing, uh, about to lose favor in the community or possibly in the community, in the workplace, in the marketplace, wherever they go. They didn't want to have people speaking against them and acting against them. Whether throwing them out of the synagogue, their place of worship, their local place of worship, or throwing them out of employment, or whatever it might be, they were fearful for those reasons. And this is why John concludes this section for fear of the Jews. Let's preach Christ to our families, no matter what they say, to our friends no matter what they say or might say, and to our employers, no matter what they might say, even in churches, no matter what the pastor or the leadership might say. We have to speak up. We have to say the truth. We now even have to do so to our own government, our own government, whether local or national, in whatever sphere, we have to speak up and speak up for the truth. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Let's be just like Christ, our Lord and Savior. If he died for us, can we not die for him? He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.